the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. This edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is a very special guest. He's a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute, an author of a number of best-selling books on the issue of bioethics. He's Wesley Smith. Today we're talking about a number of critical issues that are beginning to uh, to get some attention in the UK and that rightfully so ought to get some attention here in America, particularly for those um, that ought to be on the, the cutting edge, the front line, so to speak, of this entire debate, whether we talk about it as uh, medical ethics, bio ethics, death with dignity, whenever the terminology that we might choose to use, in the end, all of it comes down to the value of life, the sanctity of life, and how exactly do we define that? I would think, Wesley, that this would be something for which the church would be just cutting edge, that this is top of mind for us. After all, we understand what's at risk here. We know the Creator. We know the terms under which we were created. And therefore, the church ought to be sort of leading the the, the clarion call. And yet I wonder, just how aware are people of faith of this slippery slope that we've been experiencing in, in the issue of bioethics over the last decade or so? My experience uh, is that the church is half awake and half asleep. But you also have to understand uh, that we are like fish in water. I mean, we swim in a milieu. Uh, This milieu is hitting us at every turn. Uh, There's also this idea of um, avoiding suffering at all costs that is part of our culture today. And you cannot be in a society, even if you're a part of the church, and not be impacted to some degree by by a lot of this. There's also what I call terminal non-judgmentalism out there, that uh, we're supposedly not having the right to impose our values on others unless you're the federal government imposing birth control on the Catholic Church. Uh, So there are times when you will see uh, even people who are uh, devout members of the church saying, well, because I want a particular situation, you know, I should be able to cut this corner. And I think that you've raised, I think, a very important point. There are going there are now things that are legal and there will be things in the future that may be legal that would be uh, against everything that the church stands for. The question then will become, are people going to refuse to do things that the church says is immoral, even though it might, in uh, in their view, help them? This is going to lead to some very real crises of conscience, and the church is going to have to help people make the right and moral decision, regardless of what might be legal. All right. With that said, let's talk about some of the slippery slope. You refer to the church as fish in the water. Uh, Another example might be the frog in the kettle, that there is the slow, steady erosion, uh, manipulation of what had been the biblical moral standard that suddenly now becomes uh, far more allowable than what used to be permitted. Let me share an example here. Some folks will be familiar with this clip from the 700 Club. This is Pat Robertson responding to a letter that was sent in by one of his listeners um, regarding a friend whose spouse is suffering from Alzheimer's. Give a listen. 
Matt, this is Andreas who says, I have a friend whose wife suffers from Alzheimer's. She doesn't even recognize him anymore, and as you can imagine, the marriage has been rough. My friend has gotten bitter at God for allowing his wife to be in that condition, and now he started seeing another woman. He says that he should be allowed to see other people because his wife, as he knows her, is gone. I'm not quite sure what to tell him. Please help. Oh, that is a terribly hard thing. It is, I, I hate Alzheimer's. It is one of the most awful things because here's the loved one. This is the woman or man that you have loved for 20, 30, 40 years, and suddenly that person is gone. They're gone. They are gone. So what he says basically is correct, but I, I know it sounds cruel, but he's, he, if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again. But, uh, you know, to make sure she has custodial care and somebody looking after her. But isn't that the vow that we take when we marry someone? That it's yeah, for better, well, for worse, for richer, for poorer? I know it's if, if you respect that vow, but you say, look, death do us part. This is the kind of death. I certainly wouldn't put a guilt trip on you. If uh, he says the person who is suffering from Alzheimer's is just gone. Apparently, too, is the, the whole ethical foundation on this point. I mean, talk about situational ethics. Yeah, that, that was, I, I heard about that when it occurred, and it's just appalling. My uncle died of Alzheimer's, so I know what this is. He's not gone. He's disabled. He's ill. We don't abandon, at least we never used to, abandon the ill because it doesn't suit us and doesn't make us happy and we want to go out to greener pastures. The whole point, I thought, of marriage and of being, uh, in many ways, a Christian is you care for the ill. You do not abandon them so you can go have more fun. She isn't dead. Dying isn't dead. Dying is living. Uh, I just found that from a leader, purported leader, of, of the church who once proclaimed himself uh, part of the uh, moral uh, renaissance in this country. It was just an appalling thing. How far removed is an opinion like that from what we're discussing today in the arena of bioethics and the issue of a physician now being able to say, well, you know, at one time we used to consider death um, a coronary death. Heart ceases to pump, all body functions shut down. You are now declared clinically dead. We've now broadened this uh, definition to say that, well, we have uh, sort of in degrees of which we are dead. You may be brain dead, still physically functioning, but there's no brain activity. And so now all of a sudden we're broadening this definition for the convenience of saying, well, we can now harvest your organs. Wouldn't you want to do that to help somebody else who's younger and in better health and, and for whom the donation of your liver, your heart, your kidney would allow them to enjoy a quality of life that you cannot? Well, you know, brain death is a kind of a um, popularization of what's called death by neurological criteria. And what is required for that uh, is not only the death of the whole brain, but each and every constituent part of the brain. That doesn't mean every brain cell is is no longer a, a technically living, but it means the brain has completely ceased to function. And uh, as one uh, pro-life neurologist who supports brain death told me, uh, it would be as if somebody were decapitated. And and through um, medicine, uh, medical uh, um, machinery and so forth, that, quote, body can be kept alive for a period of time. Now, that's a bit of a controversy still. There's a fellow named uh, uh, Sherwin Newland, who was a UCLA uh, a neurologist, uh, who once believed that uh, the, the concept of brain death, as I've just described it, uh, 
was real. And now because he's found a couple of cases of where people were able to be kept on, usually the the brain dead, quote unquote, person uh, can't be kept on those machines for very long. They begin to deteriorate because everything begins to go out. But you can take the brain, I mean, sorry, the heart out of the body. It has its own nerves and it can beat outside the body, too. That doesn't mean that that it's alive in the sense we're talking about. The real problem here isn't, for me, brain death. Assuming proper diagnosis, that's a big if. But let's not go there, because I, we don't have uniform standards. There's just too many qualifiers. Yeah, that we don't have uniform standards in this country for diagnosing death by neurological criteria. We don't have universal standards for when a, uh, a, a body can be harvested after a what we'll call heart death or the, uh, the cessation of heartbeat that's permanent and irreversible. You now have people saying because there is a bit of, as you pointed out, a bit of a uh, um, equivocation in terms of is it really truly dead uh, and most sincerely dead as in The Wizard of Oz. You have people writing articles in some of the most noted journals saying, well, what we told you was dead isn't really dead. Ha ha ha. So now we have to expand the harvestable people uh, to include um uh, people like Terry Schiavo. Let me give you a couple of quotes on that. And this I, this is in an article that is currently up on the dailycaller.com, uh, which I wrote called The Killing for Organs Pushers. And people can get that as this is being uh, uh, done today, which is Valentine's Day, the 14th, as we're doing this. Um, this is from the journal Bioethics. If a patient opts for voluntary active euthanasia in a society that permits it and then chooses termination via removal of vital organs, it seems clear that no more harm is done to others than if he were terminated by any other means. Now, you might say we would never kill people in terms of euthanasia and then take their organs, would we? They are already doing it in Belgium, where euthanasia is legal. They are writing about it in medical journals. They're going around Europe, and they are doing medical symposia, saying this is a very good way to get organs, because they're not only targeting people who are terminally ill, but people who are profoundly disabled, such as with multiple sclerosis. I found a medical journal describing four cases of euthanasia, followed by organ harvesting from Belgians. Three were disabled with diseases like... um, multiple sclerosis, and one was mentally ill who wasn't physically ill at all. And by the way, we were talking about Switzerland before. They've created a constitutional right to assisted suicide for the mentally ill. Let's pause on that point, because when we come back, I'm going to have you address the question, Wesley Smith, is what, where is the moral divide between this point of or fashion of greater good thinking and what was being done by Dr. Mengele in Auschwitz in the 1930s and 40s. We'll pause, come back to more of our conversation. We're talking today about a critical question before the church, and that is the whole issue of medical ethics, bioethics, and this alarming slippery slope down which we are already headed in many parts of the world and what we as the church need to be doing. A brief time out back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Again, let me share information if you'd like to get a copy of um, one of Wesley Smith's best-selling books. Uh, one of the most apropos to our conversation today is a book he wrote called Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America. That's available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get more information about Wesley's blog, 
Found at Secondhand Smoke. Details on his website at wesleyjsmith.com. We're talking about the whole question of bioethics today and this alarming, um, frankly, slippery slope down which we seem to be headed, much of it justified by uh, a morphing of what had been um, a very firm bioethical foundations. That all of a sudden is taking on the sort of this, the spirit of the greater good going on. Because after all, while the quality of one person's life might be diminishing, can't we uh, automatically help ourselves to those organs to improve the life of someone else's. And to a degree, as we were mentioning, Wes, just before the break, this idea of of, uh, basically playing God in some respects is deciding who gets to live, who doesn't, and how we define the quality of life up to and including suggesting that while someone might have a diminished capacity from a mental standpoint and yet still be fully functioning individual in every other and, regard. And even seeking to redefine the meaning of death itself. So, so with that in mind then, what, where is the medical divide? Where, are, are there any degrees of separation here left at all? Or is this, frankly, morally and ethically no different than the justification used by the Nazis as Dr. Uh, Mengele was doing his experiments on twins in Auschwitz in the 1940s? First, this is not a done deal. And one of the reasons I work so hard uh, on my blog, on the articles and coming into studio like this is because the contest is on. There is a robust defense for the sanctity of human life. Uh, places like uh, what I work at the Discovery Institute, the Center on Human Exceptionalism. So the lines are not being drawn, have not been drawn yet, but they're heading in that direction. In other words, there's still time to reverse this. Yes, and but people have to be aware of it. Much of what's going on uh, in this quote-unquote battle is happening above and beyond what the mainstream media covers in medical journals. I've read you an example. Here's another example. And by the way, think of what Pat Robertson said about Alzheimer's. They're being gone. You might as well uh, get a divorce and go on. And and this is from the journal Nature. Few things are as sensitive as death, but concerns about the legal details of declaring death in someone who will never again be the person he or she was... That's exactly what Robertson said, should be weighed against the value of giving a full and healthy life to someone who will die without a transplant. So you take Pat Robertson's statement about, well, you know, of course you want to get a different wife because she's gone. Your your wife is gone. She'll never be what she was. Now, take that same attitude and move that into the concept of, well, gee, there might be somebody else who could use that liver more than the person. Therefore, Uh, what was the difference between looking at your wife of 60 years who's now 80 versus what she was when you got married when she was 20 and saying, well, she's never going to be 20 again. That's right. And so now uh, everything is permissible under the sun. You know, and and I'm reminded it it takes (laughs) me back to that one passage, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to. To death. Now, of course, in this case, the psalmist is referring to spiritual death, but apparently now in this application, it's also lethal. So you have you have this utilitarian agenda. You do have places like the Center for Bioethics and Culture, Jennifer Law. Uh, I've Good been friend. with you uh, mm-hmm. in, in studio with her before. I'm a special consultant to them fighting this agenda. You have the Patients' Rights Council, Rita Marker, who got me involved in these issues, fighting assisted suicide, fighting this agenda. The Center on Human Exceptionalism at the Discovery Institute, fighting this agenda. agenda. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity out of uh, Illinois, uh, Trinity, um, uh, fighting this agenda. The problem is a lot of people don't believe when I'm sure there are people on the road listening to us in rush hour 
And they're saying, no, it's not happening. It makes for a great it's, radio, but this, this can't is, be this true. This is just bl- yeah. I have not exaggerated anything, but I am not saying it has become a done deal. I am saying that unless people engage and say, no, we stand for the sanctity and dignity of human life, even sometimes when we might not benefit in terms of, of how we might should we violate that principle, then we can prevail. The more we talk about this in the public, we can prevail. The more we refuse to go along with the um, the changing of the lexicon, such as aid in dying instead of assisted suicide, we can prevail. The more we speak to, let, let's say you're walking down the street and your friend looks at a, somebody in a wheelchair across the street and said, you know, if I were like that, I'd go to Kevorkian. What a great moment and opportunity for educating and letting people, nobody is worth going to Kevorkian. Nobody is Kevorkian bait, and that person enjoys the same dignity as you or I do. What a pre- tremendous opportunity to uh, to educate and help persuade. Is this a case where we have to force people then to, uh, Wesley, to be clear about what they really mean when they will grab certain key phrases, the modification, the morphing of the yes. lexicon as we've discussed? I mean, for, for example, if a physician talks about, in the case of what's uh, happening is this is this large paradigm shift in the UK, this push for so-called presumed consent, uh, to which every patient is automatically a donor unless they opt out, um, where to me, the person that's laying in the hospital bed is my brother, my father, my son, but to a physician, they're just a source of spare parts. Do we have to force people to be clear about what they're talking about here? that they don't hide behind the ability of morphing the language? Yes, and we also have to be careful not to accuse physicians as yet of being in that place. The contest is on in the healthcare system. There are a lot of physicians and nurses fighting against these agendas, fighting desperately against these agendas. We have to not uh, throw them into the same category. And that's fair, yeah. but, but, but let's also be clear here. We know for a fact as we sit at this table that this is going on in some countries, maybe not the UK, maybe not in the westernized part of the world, but in China, for example, there is active organ harvesting taking place up to and including the point where if somebody needs a few extra bucks, you've got two kidneys, sell one, a doctor will be happy to harvest it from you. Look at the great job you're going to do, all wrapped up in the, in the altruistic goal of helping somebody else. I call that biological colonialism. And you have uh, rich people from the West going to places like China, paying $100,000 for a liver, which means somebody's going to be murdered, tissue type first and then murdered, probably a Falun Gong or political mm-hmm. prisoner, murdered so you can have your liver. Well, we're back to the science of eugenics. Yes. I value my life more than yours. Right. But, and you have uh, you had the Philippines that had to pass a law saying, because of, the, because of organ purchasing, purchasing of kidneys, living kidneys, living people, you had, they passed a law saying nobody from outside the Philippines can have an organ transplant in the Philippines. Why is that happening? Because people from our country are colonizing the human body as if... Uh, it were a natural resource. And what we have to do, I think, is stop justifying people when they want to do things that aren't right and start helping them do things that are right. Uh, For example, um, IVF. Let's say that a a woman gets pregnant and uh, through IVF and there are three fetuses. We hear of, well, you should have a selective reduction. That's another one of those word games, meaning an abortion. I've heard uh, bioethicists say, well, we can turn triplets into twins. No, you're turning uh, triplets into two triplets and one dead triplet. Uh, We have to 
help people do the right thing, even though sometimes doing the right thing is the painful thing. So there has to be a clear delineation then to understand that just because it might be technically or medically feasible or legal or legal does not make it ethically expedient. That's right. And uh, I think there is a tendency, a natural tendency among all of us. And I think part of it comes from Oprah Winfrey. Anything you do, you're supposed to feel good about yourself. I don't think we do each other a favor, though, when something might make us feel good about ourselves if it's morally wrong. And I think what we have to do is encourage each other and carry each other's burdens and pains because sometimes doing the right thing will be the painful thing. Well, as we know from both a, a scriptural context as we understand just a life context, that um, uh, pain or guilt is there for a reason. If I put my <laughs> yeah. hand on top of the stove and I feel pain, that's a warning sign to withdraw my hand immediately. Otherwise, I'm going to potentially suffer irreparable harm to my hand. Likewise, if you're engaging in a behavior that you feel guilty about, don't don't buy into the lie of, of those like an Oprah Winfrey that would suggest that, well, what's wrong about this is the fact that you're feeling guilt. Just dispense with the guilt and go ahead and do it. Feel good about it. No, right. that guilt is there for a reason. And I think we should try to not have a sense of entitlement to everything we want. I think we can strive for what we want so long as it's ethical and moral, but there are lines. Uh, adultery is an easy one. You know, I might see that 25 year old girl going down, the woman, young woman going down the street and think, gee, I'd like to be with that young woman. I'm married. I can't do that. And that same, and that's pretty easy to understand. But uh, even though I, I would say it's easy to understand, unless you're Pat Robertson, because I would look at the same thing and say, what is the moral equivalent of that? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Our visit today with Wesley Smith, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, continues. Wes's book, by the way, Culture of Death, the Assault on Medical Ethics in America, available through Amazon.com. As well, you can get more information through his website, information, too, on his blog, found at Secondhand Smoke. Details online at WesleyJSmith.com. That's WesleyJSmith.com. We're talking about a a very troubling paradigm shift that's happening in the medical community. It's happening certainly at the level at which uh, the services that are provided by physicians are being paid for. Uh, For example, what's happening in nationalized healthcare in countries like Britain, the shift that we see taking place in the same direction here in our own nation. We're suddenly now motivated by concerns over lacks of resources, whether it's an issue of living longer, living healthier, um, living safer, and therefore not having as many organs at our disposal to transplant into other individuals, or simply saying, we only have so much money, so we have to somehow come up with a yardstick by which we measure who gets the money for one treatment and who does not. All of a sudden now, we're seeing a massive erosion of what had been the foundation of ethics in America. And it's I would seem too, Wesley, the big part of this is seeing a, a the slow erosion of what had been the the guiding light, so to speak, the moral compass of America, the Judeo Christian ethic. Absolutely. It said to us that life has an intrinsic value, not comma if, but rather life has value. Period. We that hold period's these, been we hold these truths. Yep. It's been changed from a period to a comma. It's been changed to to a comma, and there is a great deal of persuasion to get people to say that life doesn't necessarily have uh, value. Moreover, that human life 
as a value itself is irrelevant. What matters is certain capacities. So in the animal rights movement, uh, which I believe we've talked about, um, it isn't the being human is not what gives value. It's the ability to feel pain. Now, this is not animal welfare, but animal rights. And so PETA brought that lawsuit against SeaWorld trying to declare whales to be slaves. Why? Because in in that, tech, that uh, belief system, there is no moral distinction between whales and cows and squirrels and people. Uh, in uh, uh, some radical environmental groups, human beings are not only not uh, uniquely valuable, we're the villains of the planet. We're the AIDS-afflicting planet Earth. And so we have become, uh, look at that movie, um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the remake, starring Kenow Reeves. In the original version from the 50s, Michael Rennie, the alien came down to Earth to save people from themselves. In the Kenow Reeves remake, the alien came down to Earth to commit total genocide to save the Earth. And that was an A-list Hollywood movie. That was the, 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 so there are anti-human agendas. Humanism is morphing into anti-humanism. The concept of human exceptionalism is being disdained and attacked. The sanctity of human life is being discarded. If the church falls prey to this, and I don't think it will, but realize the church, how did the church begin to gain uh, credibility in ancient Rome? It was rescuing babies exposed on hills and raising those children as their own. It was nurturing and caring for the poor. We uh, Christians showed ourselves to be a different ethic from the reigning pagan culture, which was very harsh. And that ethic, that value, was not extended exclusively to ourselves and right. our own camp, but extended beyond our borders. And, and look at the Sisters of, of, the, of Missionaries of Mercy, the Mother Teresa's group. They had an AIDS hospice during the height of the AIDS uh, epidemic here in San Francisco. And I moved to San Francisco in 1992. It was horrible to see. What a catastrophe for those young men. The Sisters of Missionaries of Mercy took them all in comers, Catholic or non-Catholic. That's what Christianity is. And yet, under this new Obamacare rule, the Missionaries of Mercy, because they weren't restricting their care to Catholics would have to cover contraception in the nuns' health care plan. Obviously, we're in a, a, a very critical position right now. We're, we're, at a, we're at a crossroads where our action or inaction is, is really going to determine the direction of our nation, of our planet, uh, forever to come. In, in a few moments, if you would, as our time winds down this afternoon, Wes, Give us some insights in terms of what needs to be the, the marching orders here for the church. I think, uh, and you would know the scripture uh, where to find this, but when the, in the separation of the goats and the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. Mm-hmm. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you cared for me. This is a paraphrase. Uh, and when did we do this, Lord? When you did that to the least of me, you did it on uh, my brothers. You did it unto me. That good that whole um, discourse really focuses me. If we end up in a place where we start discarding people, we could end up on the other side of that equation. I was sick and you killed me. Mm. I was old and you abandoned me. What did we do that unto you, Lord? When you did that unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it unto me. That, for the church, is a clear dividing line. 
It takes us back again in that passage of Matthew 25 to what we saw demonstrated in the dangerous slippery slope that took place in Nazi Germany. We made references to this earlier on in our conversation today, uh, that when they came for the Jews, I wasn't a Jew, so I said nothing. When they came for, and we just ticked off the list of individuals, they came for the communists, I wasn't a communist, so I did nothing. When they came for me, there was no one left to speak up for me. But we also have to be careful not to say uh, this is Nazis because people will look around and say, wait a minute, we're not seeking Heil and we're not setting up death camps. And yet. And, yet. <laughs> and the, the things the Nazis did in terms of the medical uh, Holocaust, the sterilizations, 340,000 people involuntarily sterilized in Germany. That came from the law of California. Our euthanasia, our sorry, eugenics law, the uh, the medical holocaust of the euthanasia murders of the disabled babies, and the uh, the disabled adults under the T four program, Tiergarten four, that was not being forced by the Nazis. That was doctors doing it because they wanted to do it. And advocacy for that began with a book called Permission to Destroy Life Unworthy of Life by an, a lawyer and a doctor, Alfred Hoch and uh, Karl Binding back in 1920, before anybody had ever heard of Adolf Hitler. So by the, 1927, a majority according to polling, a majority of pa- parents of disabled children thought it would be okay for doctors to kill them. There was that kind of push in the 20s, long before Hitler adopted some of these policies as his own. So this isn't West then to say, let's take action so it doesn't happen. The reality here is let's take action so it doesn't happen again. Yes, and also realize that it isn't just the Nazis, that people who uh, are nothing like Nazis can fall into this well, if they reject the concept of the intrinsic dignity and exceptionalism and value of human life. Once you say some lives have greater value than others, particularly in the healthcare context, you start down a logical road. We are a logical species. We will go where our principles take us. And if we say that Grandma Jones has less value because she has Alzheimer's than Wesley Smith, then we have started down a terrible road that can end in exploitation, oppression, and killing. And as we delineated earlier, this is not something that might be in happening. It's already a contested issue. It's already a debate within the medical community in Great Britain. And here. And here, too. And here. Debate. Not actual happening, but debate. Get more information, get educated, get involved. Details again on the web. Wesley's got all kinds of great resources available. Just go to WesleyJSmith.com. That's WesleyJSmith.com. And Wes, as always, we appreciate the time and the insights. Now you see why I'm so much fun at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, Wes. Thanks. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is an alarming statistic and one that both regionally in the San Francisco Bay Area and nationally is growing by an alarming rate. Would you be shocked to discover that approximately one out of three women, about 35% of the U.S. female population at some time in their life has been the victim of domestic violence? Oftentimes, the violence takes forms beyond just simple verbal or physical altercations, sexual violence. Oftentimes, it spills into other areas of the family where even the children become victims. Women quite often are left with no other option but to run. But then in the running, the question becomes, where? Where do you go? Going to a friend's house, maybe a relative. Well, the abusive partner or husband knows where they live. They just simply follow and bring the abuse with them. 
What options are available for women who find themselves victims of domestic abuse and violence where they can go, find a place that can be loving, sheltering, give them an opportunity to get their life back on track again, all the while also welcoming their children. Joining me today in studio is the Executive Director of Shepherd's Gate Ministries, and Steve McCree, welcome to the program. Thank you. I guess the big answer to that question is, where do they go? What options do these women have? One answer is indeed Shepherd's Gate. Absolutely, Craig. Uh, We've seen over 10,000 women and kids come and live at Shepherd's Gate over the years, and uh, every one of them that has come through has has found a relationship pretty much with Jesus Christ, and that just totally transforms their lives. This ministry is a real grassroots ministry in every uh, sense of the term, isn't it? I mean, I, I think of the beginnings. This began as one woman with one house, with one burden, to help women that were facing crisis circumstances. And this has grown into a ministry now 25, 30 years later that, as you say, has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of women and their families. That's fairly remarkable. That's correct. It's it's totally been totally God and um, started a little three-bedroom house, 16 women in a very short-term program. We couldn't help them very long, and it's grown just in the past few years to two campuses. 90 women and children can live at a time. And the services, like there's 42 different classes we give them, all Bible-based. Their lives are literally transformed. When you see someone come in the door, um, the beautiful thing to me is they can come in literally black and blue, uh, certainly hopeless in their eyes. Uh, the kids are dragging their, dragging their one little toy behind them or whatever. Just all their belongings with them. And they've escaped, and they are not don't know what they're escaping to. And sometimes when they first walk in and see the beauty that God's provided there in the actual physical buildings, they just weep and realize how much God loves them and how much the community, how many caring people there are. Because with no government support, it's all people in the community, and that's the way we uh, exist. You know, the irony is we, we hear of these statistics, 35% of women uh, at some time in their life will become victims of domestic violence of one sort or another. And, of course, we know on the, the severe end of that continuum are women that are dealing with circumstances where the husband is physically abusive, sexually abusive, maybe is dealing with a drug or alcohol problem. That spills over into now abusing the children. Women oftentimes are fleeing these circumstances. No sense of what they're running to. They just know what they're running from and feel as if there's no one that cares, no one that can help them. They're afraid to go to the authorities because oftentimes the the husband or the boyfriend is saying, you know, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you or I'm going to kill somebody else in your family. So they're, they're, they're having to face a tremendous amount of uncertainty into which then as they finally make up the courage, find the, the, it within themselves to flee, oftentimes right at the skin of their teeth. There have been cases of women that have changed their mind at the last minute and wound up dead. Yes. But now as they've flown out of that circumstance, they've got no resources. The husband's shut down access to the checking account. There's no credit card. They might be full-time mothers that have no marketable skills. Where do you go? What relative do you call and say, by the way, not only do I need to get away from my abusive partner, but now I got a couple of young kids with me. And so in that sense, then, Shepherd's Gate has really become kind of a an oasis for these women, hasn't it? Absolutely. With the intensive programs 
and with the love of God, uh, again, they get everything they need to rebuild their lives for them and their kids. And then also uh, stops the cycle of abuse. And you're talking about the abuse that can happen. Shepherd's Gate really takes in women and kids that are homeless for any reason. Much of that is domestic violence. Uh, one form of abuse is abandonment. One gal came in with five kids because her husband had taken the bank account, everything they owned, and she's on the streets. And within two months, uh, her life was completely turned around. She didn't know Christ when she came in, neither did her children. One by one, they found the Lord, and their their um, entire demeanor changed so much. She knew there must be a, really a God for their kids to change that much. Yeah, she had a house and a job within three months of coming to us. So they're not only rescued from often very dangerous circumstances, they're given a sense of hope in some cases, hope for the very first time. You were mentioning to me, Steve, off the air of the story of one woman who had been involved in the Shepherd's Gate program for a while now, who literally, in in the middle of a, of a gathering, stopped and was crying and was expressing the fact that at that moment, she was experiencing genuine, unconditional love for the very first time in her life, and this is a woman in her 40s. Yes, she's about 45 years old and just began bawling during our, actually yesterday's Bible study. Wow. My wife and I were giving, and she just said, it's the first time I've ever had love, experienced love from anyone, much less to understand that God loves me. And she said, you know, it's the first time I've ever been happy in my life, and it's the first time I've ever loved myself. There's something different about the approach that Shepherd's Gate takes. I mean, there are plenty of women's shelters. We know about them. You can go online and you can find a whole list of them in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can go to the Yellow Pages and find them. Finding a shelter is one thing. Finding home, finding family is something entirely different. As you look at the programs and services offered by Shepherd's Gate, distill down, if you would, Steve, for our listeners, what's the one single difference about Shepherd's Gate from any of the other secular programs that are out there? It is saturated with the love of God and the Word of God, and they learn that they um, have a creator who has a purpose for their life. Uh, our belief is that most of the women that come through our doors had a call in their life, a purpose to fulfill by God, and that the enemy tried to take them out. And when they learn that they were created for a purpose and have a purpose, then we wrap, as I said before, about 42 different types of classes and programs, anything from job interviewing to parenting skills to budgeting, in with all the biblical principles they learn and the relationships that they, they gain, it changes their life. Totally. It stops the cycle, as you mentioned. It stops the cycle totally. It gives them a brand new start. Four generations. Them- We've got one lady came in, and there's four generations in her family that were all touched by Shepherd's Gate. Wow. One young man was with us when he was five years old. He's now in his late 20s and is a pastor. And his brother was also with us when he was three years old. He and his wife now started a Christian camp up in the Sierras. So it's just beautiful to see generational change. And and it demonstrates the power of the impact of changed lives through Jesus Christ. It also demonstrates this ongoing sense that as much as the beginning days with Alice Ann that were part of this grassroots 
burden to do something, that that sense of grassroots community involvement continues to this day. People come, they volunteer, they conduct Bible studies with the women, training classes. You have churches that come in and volunteer, individuals that donate and support the ministry financially and prayerfully and, and by other ways. So I guess in a real sense that the original family feeling that was so much of what Shepherd Gate was about in the beginning has continued on to this day. And that, with the component of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, has really has been the, then the, the driving force of what's allowed this ministry to impact so many lives. We do try to keep it home. The buildings are structured to be, they're, they're very large houses, they're 11 bedrooms, but they are their homes. And so the women feel uh, security there. They don't feel like they're in an institution, uh, certainly not in a shelter. They feel like they're home. And even the kids, um, instead of being ashamed to say they're going to the shelter on Portola, they say, I live in that big mansion on Portola. And they're proud to tell the other kids at school that. So it, it's just the self-esteem is just goes out of the roof, both on the facilities and, and the home field. And they stay, uh, the families stay connected with us long after they're gone. They come back and volunteers. We have many of them that we hire as employees, both at our thrift stores. And they also become um, house moms and work on the campus and help ladies that were in the same condition they were. So the impact is not only widespread, multi-generational, long-lasting. In fact, I, at the core, we could say the impact is eternal. Good yes, it is. Yeah, from a spiritual standpoint. If folks want to come by and visit, uh, this is kind of one of those things where you need to see it and experience. People say, gee, I, I love the sound of a ministry like that. And boy, I'd love to get involved. Our church would love to maybe come down and volunteer. We'd like to get behind the ministry financially. Uh, in a real sense, uh, seeing is believing, isn't it? Absolutely. And we love people to come visit. Uh, if they just call the office, 443-4283-443-GATE, uh, make an appointment. We'll definitely have staff there to lead them. I'd love to lead them through, uh, meet the people. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to have guests. And, of course, if you'd like to find out more about Shepherd's Gate, you can get details on the web by simply going to shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. You have campuses both in Brentwood and in Livermore. That's correct. And so if somebody would say, hey, we, boy, this sounds like something we'd like to get behind and support, they can call, come out, visit one of the two campuses, both if they'd like, and, of course, uh, get a chance to discover more about this dynamic ministry that's been changing women's lives and impacting those for Christ right here in the Bay Area. Details again on the web at shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. And our thanks to Steve McCree, Executive Director of Shepherdsgate. Steve, thanks for dropping by. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star.
retired general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.